Hello and welcome to uh, podcast number two in our series of podcasts for the firm, Clark Jeffers and Company Solicitors. Uh, my name is William Clark. I am a partner in Clark Jeffers Solicitors in Carlo. And today I'm joined uh, by Ronan Lyons and David Ashmore in relation to topics pertaining to residential and commercial property. Uh, Ronan is the Assistant Professor of Economics at Trinity College and would be most well known for his uh, quarterly reports on daft.ie, which is, of course, Ireland's largest property website. He's also an avid blogger, and you can find him on www.ronanlines.com. David Ashmore is a director in Sherry Fitzgerald, and he heads up the Fine Homes, Farms and Estates section. And David would have been at the helm in the sale of such estates as the Farnham Estate in Cavan, Abbeville Estate in Dublin, and Hume Castle in County Wicklow. So we might as well jump straight into this. I suppose, Ronan, I'm going to start with you. Where are we with property in Ireland at the minute? Well, I suppose the the big thing, the big theme at the moment in the in the property market is shortage, uh, and this might seem a little counterintuitive given we've had uh, eight years of of wallowing in uh, ghost estates, building too much, unfinished developments, negative equity. It seemed like we had too much rather than too little, mm. but uh, the one it's a, it's only a problem if if you can't deal with it. The problem we have that most other countries would want to have is we have a growing population, mm. uh, and in particular in the Greater Dublin area, we have roughly speaking ten thousand new families being formed a year, but only about two thousand new homes. Yeah. Uh, and that's been going on for the last five-ish years. But countrywide, it's also the case that we're we're growing more families than we are building homes. And construction really has stopped. Yeah. yeah. Um, effectively, the, there were new residential standards introduced in Dublin City Council and Dunleary Rath Down in 2007, 2008, and they are effectively untested, yeah. um, particularly in relation to building apartments. That one-off homes... And the estate homes where they typically build 10, get the money in, build some more. Um, they've been sort of drip, drip, drip going on. But the, the, the apartment blocks, the resident, the rental units, they haven't really been, been uh, coming on stream. And, and office space and hotel space, uh, the only thing that is still we still have too much of is industrial space. Um, yeah. there's, there's lots of empty industrial space, but pretty much everything else, um, we've, by building nothing for eight years, mm. we not only have worked through the backlog, we've, we now have too little. We have too little at this stage. So that, of course, is going to have a knock-on effect to the price of property. Um, you, I suppose, would know this better than anyone. The less property you have, the more interested people get in that property. So are we going to see that reflected in the markets? What what we've seen, actually, if you look at the the rental market over the last uh, three and a half to four years and the sales market over the last, say, two-ish years, um, you've seen a big increase, particularly in the urban centres and particularly in in some of the the hotspots in Dublin. Rents and prices have gone up by between 35 and 40%. Yeah, there was a sharp jump there as well, wasn't there? Yeah, so rental was a lot slower. Um, you could see it happening uh, end of 2010 into 2011. You could see the market turning. Uh, and since then, rents have been going up. The sales market turned a lot faster in the middle of 2012. Um, it just sort of um, turned on a sixpence and, has yeah, been, and went very from falling quickly. rapidly to yeah. rising rapidly. Uh, the rest of the country, in terms of prices and, and, and rents, has been a lot slower to bottom out and a lot slower to increase. Although I should say now that the prices actually are increasing more rapidly outside Dublin than they are in Dublin. Yeah. We can get back to that. But I think yeah, we'll come back to that. And I, I suppose, Dave, just in relation to your aspect of it, you would be dealing with fairly high-end properties. Were they hit as well or were they exempt from any of these big drops? 
No, they, they were certainly uh, experienced the same um, sort of drops as the mainstream market and in some cases even heavier drops um, in that um, back at the peak of the market, uh, we were talking in the order of 90% domestic buyers, um, largely credit fueled as it turned out. Um, by 2012, once the market ground out, we were talking 90% overseas buyers at the top end of the market. Now, there's, um, that has evened out a little bit since then, but we're talking in the order of 65-70% of, of buyers for the 2 million plus market particularly, coming from outside of And Ireland. is the 2 million plus market, is that still moving now? Is that gaining a bit of momentum like the, the other markets, or is that still struggling to move? So certainly in, in, in 2014, um, you know, there was very good growth in that market, um, and, and particularly in Dublin, but then that graduated outside of Dublin, you know, similar to the mainstream market. Mm. Um, coming into this year, uh, there was an in- increase in stock levels, um, and that put a, a cooling on, on, on pricing, and, and, and certainly in terms of agents and vendors alike, we probably got a little ahead of the market too in terms of our asking prices mm. for the first part of the year. Um, I, th- I think over, overall this year it is going to be up, but it's going to be more nominal growth yeah. than last year. Um, within that prime market, um, there's there's two elements. Um, you know, prime we would consider like two million plus, um, and then you've got a super prime market from five million plus. And again, that that's probably even heavier. Again, orientated on overseas um, yeah. buyers and um, and sentiment. Um, and it's really the first time within Ireland that we are really developing a super prime destination type market. Okay, so 5 million plus properties are now interesting international buyers coming in from abroad and this is a market to itself. Yeah, like like certainly in, in 2012, initial interest was really value driven mm. and the perception of, 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 of there being good value within Ireland. Now it's really been destination driven. Yeah, so Ireland is a good place to buy if you're overseas. Yeah, well, absolutely. Like to look at some of those markets and, and the buyer profiles. Um, you know, the US um, buyer and well, the Americas in general, um, but Canada and, and the United States of America in particular mm. have, have really come to the fore. Um, you know, they bought an awful lot of commercial property mm-hmm. um, within Europe, and you know, to have a base this side of the Atlantic, um, yeah, you know, absolutely. there's quite often a tangible link to Ireland, and then our connectivity. You know, a, a great legacy of the of the strong economic growth that we had. Um, you know, you're accessible to Geneva, to Paris, to Heathrow, to yeah. you, you know anywhere you wish to it's get a good to. Home to go to Europe through. Absolutely. Well, we've seen we've seen a huge amount of foreign buyers come in as well to the residential to the smaller residential section. So you have a lot of investment funds coming in and buying apartment complexes, um, and they're purchasing them off receivers. So they're coming in, buying them at a very low price, and they're now putting them onto the rental market. So very clearly, the investors from abroad are seeing decent properties in the high-end fine homes, but they're also seeing quite good investment in rental. Rona, do you think there, there is good investment there for people who are going to rent properties? Well, I think one of the most positive developments, to maybe take, go back a step in your, in your question, one of the most positive developments about the, the housing market, the residential market in the last five years, has been the emergence of the institutional landlord. Um, and that's not to denigrate the, 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 those who provided rental accommodation over the last 30, 40 years. But they did so typically on a, a one or two property basis. The vast, vast majority of rental properties were owned uh, by somebody who owned no more than one other rental property. Um, and there are, there's a limit to the efficiencies that you can achieve if you're a part-time landlord. Yeah. Uh, so 
what happened, I mean, it's a, it's a long story that goes back way back in, you know, to World War One and World War Two about rent controls. We effectively drove out the companies like the Dublin Artisans Dwellings Company that built Oxman Town. Yeah. We, we drove them out of the, the, the rental market and we were left with a very shoddy rental market as of 1970s and the 1980s. Um, and there, were, there have been targeted efforts to try and change that since. But really, it's only in the last five years that we've seen the kind of volume of interest mm. that could transform... Uh, not just the stock we have, but also our interest in whether we rent long term or buy long term. Yeah, and we were we were discussing this just at the start there as well before we started recording, just about Irish people and their their lack of interest in renting long term. Yeah, and I mean, if you if you put yourself in the shoes of somebody in uh, in two thousand or two thousand and five, and they look back. 20 or 30 years and there's they it's rapid inflation in house prices so you're taking on a debt that's dwindling in, in significance every year also you can make a free profit because you don't pay capital gains tax and up to recently there was no annual property tax and there was mortgage interest relief mm. not only that yeah. there was no um income tax on the in, imputed rent you pay yourself as your own yeah, landlord which does apply in some other countries mm. so all of these elements of the tax system were skewed in favor of ownership it made sense yeah. that people, if they could, bought. Now, we've been dismantling some elements of that. We have an annual property tax. It's small compared to other countries, but it is there. Mm. Um, we, we ha- we've got rid of mortgage interest relief. There's still no capital gains tax on your own home if you make a big profit yeah. on it. But you know that may change. Um, so we may find a much more balanced playing field now in the future. But a key part of that is having the kind of units... Um, that people want to rent. That they could actually term. live in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I agree with that. There was a huge amount of building that went on during the peak times of 2006, 2007 that were probably too small or not adequate to the means of of people wanting to live long term in these units. You know, um, and, and you're dead right in relation to taxes. And this is something we say to clients the whole time. You have to think beyond the purchase price of a house when you're looking at it. You know, you have to look at all of the taxes. We have water charges. We have a non-principal private residence charge. Um, you have the local property tax. Household charge is now gone, but it's something that had to have been discharged at some stage. So there are numerous different taxes that have to be paid. Um, and again, Dave, we'd spoken about this earlier. At your end of the market, the local property tax is something not to be sniffed at. No, we were just talking about it like when it's up for review and, um, you know, I suppose combined with, with a capital appreciation, um, you know, in terms of pricing. And then if there is, you know, the, the scope there for either increases or reductions of up to 15%. So, you know, you, you could be looking um, depending on, on, you know, your location and what view is taken, but you could be looking in the order of, of 25, 30% increases perhaps. Yeah, which would be huge. You know, and that has a, a serious knock-on effect, you know, especially if you're dealing with, as you were discussing earlier, super prime houses around Ireland, they are going to have a very hefty bill in their hands. No, absolutely, um, at that upper end, but even for people who, you know, there just isn't the available housing to downsize to in Dublin here, and, and they're in, in quite large, valuable properties, mm. but they just can't find a suitable property to downsize to because it just wasn't built you know the correct yeah. type of product wasn't built as we were discussing a mm-hmm. moment ago so you know that's the person it's really going to affect yeah and there's nothing they can do about that that's the, yeah, that's the problem we find a lot of people and we have a huge amount of clients who who are caught in a property that they can't get rid of now they're still waiting for that moment where the negative equity this magical negative equity will turn positive and they will then have the opportunity to move but there, there still are those problems which, are, which people are, are stuck with. 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's on the, the local property tax issue, there's an element of damned if you do and damned if you don't. Mm. Because if the government decides to freeze local property tax, we run the risk of going down the route of the, the UK, where now a property is basically taxed on its 1991 value because nobody has the guts to say, oh, we should revalue these. And you end up with a farcical situation when a new property is built, someone has to hypothetically value what it Come would have been worth um, in 1991. <laughs> so we don't want to go down that route. But of course, if you don't go down that route, you end up creating winners and losers and those at the very high end of the market and even those on uh, more modest incomes and more modest homes will feel the pinch of property taxes uh, going up. In terms of of creating the the, the new supply and in terms of of feeding the growing population, um, I think there's a separate challenge there which is that we've we've almost tried to solve it by decree. So if you look at the the county council um, planning standards now, uh, for particularly for apartments, but also for uh, for estates and for family homes rather for houses rather than apartments, uh, the, it's this idea of a universal home. So you will buy a home and you'll never have to move out of it, and that's just not an adequate reflection of the way we live our lives today. Mm-hmm. So building an apartment that will suit. Uh, you know, three students living together, as well as two young professionals, as well as a family with two kids, as well as a couple in their 60s, and then a, a widow in her 80s. That is not the way to design property, and unfortunately, that's the route we've gone down, that every property has to be accessible um, and suitable for all types of lifestyle. What we need, if we want to build the um, the sort of the, uh, the downsize accommodation for the empty nesters in their late 50s and 60s, if we want to build a kind of accommodation that will tempt them, um, to free up the family homes that we do have mm. around the country. Um, we will also need to be able to build a slightly smaller accommodation that will suit the students and the young professionals. Uh, and by, by sort of banning that, the smaller accommodation, um, we've effectively stopped the building of the bigger accommodation. Because mm. if you talk to it's a developer, they need to be able to build big and small mm. to build on a site, not just big. Mm. But that's, that's a great tie Right, because a big issue that I wanted to speak about, I suppose, were the new building regulations which have come in, and that has a massive knock-on effect to building. Um, the cost now, rough figures, very rough figures, but they're talking about 15% additional to building a property. Now, whether that's your own property in a field, or whether that is a developer building 100 houses, or whether it's an industrial unit going up, there are substantial cost elements which are now going into it. So this, again, is a further knock-on effect. We could see why they wanted it. You know, they did want to ensure that buildings that were constructed so we wouldn't have any issues like a Priory Hall again, where there were safety concerns about a construction. But that costs. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it as, suppose, in 1995, roughly speaking, the average house in the country cost, it, it was worth about 115, €120,000. And so we assume that, that that was sort of in some balance. Therefore, it probably cost about 100000 to build and 120000 when it was finished. There was some element of profit there. Um, now, you, you fast forward from 95 to 2007, the average house has gone up from 120000 up to something like 360 or 370000 um, Now, in that environment, who cares if the cost of building has gone from 100000 to 200000 There's effectively free profit for everyone. Yeah. You, know, you can build and it'll be nothing, it'll be worth you know, significantly more than the cost of building. And it was in that environment that we introduced these much higher minimum standards, mm. which is fine as long as the price stays up. But if, if the cost of building has gone up to 200,000 and your price goes from 360 all the way down to 180, 
nothing's going to get built because you can't even cover your costs, let alone make a profit. Mm. And it's, it's just now we're seeing at the very top end of the market that Dublin 4 apartments are being built again because yeah. they're the only place that you'll you be able to rent out and yeah. or sell. Well, we do have clients now down the country who, who cannot afford to build because it, it is too expensive to build and the profit is not there. So they're going to have to creep above probably a 200,000 euros per unit. And if we're speaking directly in Carlo, you're going to be looking anywhere between 100,000 to about 180 for the majority of properties. So they have not hit that level that they need to hit. For, for me, the key thing here, in terms of if you're a policymaker, we already have like a, an example in the competitiveness world is the World Bank doing business rankings, where you literally can go along and you can see how does Ireland rank in terms of connecting the electricity or registering a company or paying your taxes. And every element of that can be scrutinised. And if Ireland wants to come top in the world for doing business, you need to address this, this and this. Yes. We need to do the same for building a family home or building an apartment. Because at the moment, 30 years ago, local authorities built houses. So they knew how expensive it was or how cheap it was mm. to build. Now they don't. So they, when they introduce these different standards, they don't even think about how it affects the break-even point mm. and how it translates into higher costs for a, a buyer or for a renter. Um, and I actually spoke to local authority planners in Dublin last October, November, and I asked them, you know, the, how much do these new minimum standards affect the break-even rent? And none of them had even thought in those terms. So we need to get them back thinking in those terms. And then we can say, okay, if we're thinking about, say, building family homes in Carlo, have we got the price per square metre back in line with people's incomes? Yeah. Uh, and we don't at the moment. It's, it's way out. In fact, if it doesn't even make sense in most of parts yeah. of Dublin, how is it going to make sense Outside. Um, where, where value is and so much cheaper? Only today I heard that there was a, an increase in planning applications made. Now, so that sounds fantastic. And I was in the car listening to it this morning and it sounded great. Planning applica- applications going in and they're increasing. But then you listen to the counties that they were going in on, and they were Leitrim, Longford, Roscommon, um, and these were some of the counties that were absolutely wiped by the recession on the basis that they just overexpanded too quickly. Um, and of course, they were the last ones to begin construction again. So it's a bit of a misnomer about what is being constructed and the planning applications that are going in. So uh, there, there really is a kind of two-tier market. Now, do you see that on the higher end? Dave, with properties inside and outside of Dublin? Yeah, like, certainly with the higher end, I, I think you know, it mirrored um, the mainstream market again in, in that um, you know, it, the recession, if anything, dragged things back towards Dublin and became Dublin-centric um, our economy again. Um, like in, in terms of um, you know, the 1 million plus market, um, you know, the, the good news is, is that there was 458 sales in the 1 million plus market in 2014 compared to 311 the year before. Um, but when you drill down into that, you know, there's, there's 389 of those 458-odd sales were in Dublin. Mm. So, you know, it really... It's very specific. Um, so, you know, very much, it, it, you know, Dublin is consolidating in terms of population, jobs and wealth at a rapid rate. And, um, you know, it, not hugely dissimilar to, to, you know, on a much smaller scale, obviously, but to New York or to London, mm. you know, in, in America and in England. Um and so, you know, we definitely have that. Um, now, outside of that, you know, getting back to, I suppose, a super prime market um, in terms of what Ireland has to offer in, in, in terms of, of large country house estates um, where you can get them that are largely intact and on a large acreage with a good house, like they are quite rare and they're becoming increasingly rare in England, let's say, and, and in other, other countries as well. So that's where, you know, as a destination, we, we really are. Um, we something know, different to we, something. So then, you know, Ireland is small. Um, 
you know, in, in a context, um, you can drive from, from, you know, the Irish Sea in Dublin across to Galway um, in less time than you can drive from Times Square in New York to, to um, the Catskill Mountains up the other end of New York. So, you know, that's how small we are, mm-hmm. you know. And then, uh, you know, another, another good example is you, you can get on an airplane in New York and be in Dublin quicker than you can be in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. So, you know, really, for them having a destination home here in Ireland, it's not that big a step when you think about it that way in that they think nothing of having homes on the east and west coast of America. OK, they're going over land bridge rather than the sea bridge, but it's not, not that much of a development. In and I, I wonder what kind of knock-on effect we're going to have from these super prime houses. You know, to the, to the Johnny Soap on the street who's going to buy what could be anywhere from a, a fantastic three-bed semi for 120000 the whole way up to a five, ten million euro house. You know, there's such an area in the middle of that that people are confused at the minute. Should they buy? Should they not buy? Where is the market at? Well, like there, there is something that, that transcends. It's not, not just prime or super prime, yeah. but, but throughout the market that, that's really been noticed at the moment, and that's, that's the effect of currencies. The weakening euro has helped cut Irish property prices for international um, buyers, uh, like creating a de, de facto um, discount. Um, like in terms of, of um, a million euro property last year is now costing someone in the US 900,000 odd roughly. Um, so you're talking, you know, they're, they're getting um, discounts in that order, you know, similar with sterling, you know, 10, 15% discounts. And even if you're coming in with Chinese yen, you're talking 15, 20% discounts on, um, in, in that period of time. Um, so, you know, that, that really has an effect on those overseas. Um, like within the overseas market too, you know, there's a sizable Irish contingent within that. Mm. And um, particularly those based with sterling. Um, and, you know, they, they had a great recession as well. So in, in, in terms of they not just had great capital appreciation during the recession when there was a, a, a massive correction this side of the Irish Sea, but they, they now also have a, you know, a currency advantage as well. Yeah. So it's never, never really been in a stronger position. So the only person really losing out are the euro. Well, again, similarly, um, you know, in terms of like, like talking about, I suppose, those, those strongest currencies that are looking to Ireland at the moment, it, it is you know, very much being dominated by um, the US dollar and, and by sterling, Canadian dollar. Um, you know, Asia, like the, the Chinese, you know, less so, but certainly there. But like what we are beginning to see, and certainly it, it, it's really come down to an increase in website traffic to date and, and, and interviewings and, and, and transcended into a few sales. But I, I think it's something that's going to increase. And there were, you know, there were there before is the continental and the European buyers. So those within the Eurozone to buy a destination home now in currencies outside of the Euro is coming at a penalty to them. So suddenly there's, there's an attraction to them to buy within the Eurozone. Absolutely. And so, you know, what attracted them to Ireland in the 1980s? A, a lot of those factors are now back. Like we've recalibrated, um, you know, in, in terms of a lot of the attractiveness to them, you know, the perception of good value for money, but also then in, in, in terms of ourselves and the quality of life that it presents. And, um, you know, that, that's kind of, there's been a correction there within our yeah. And as, as we said, Greece, that has a knock-on effect. No Greek people will be looking to invest in Ireland. Or well, if they have it, they'll if be they able to get out of Greece. Yeah. They might be, uh, <laughs> but no, certainly the I mean, the, the general the, the health of the eurozone um, and the stability of the eurozone it, that has an impact not only on on cross border investment patterns, but also on a key driver of demand, which is 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 optimism or confidence about the economic conditions in the future, uh, and that in itself goes back to I mean a lot of the roots of the bubble were late 90s, early 2000s, as economic confidence increased, uh, it, it fed into both 
borrowers and, and lenders. And it tricked us all into thinking this time it's different, as the saying goes in, in and finance. When do you think that was early 90s, really, when this began? So, well, up to 95, if you, if you take house prices and strip out inflation, and you do a little graph of house prices, all the way back to 1900, 1900 to 1995, mm. um, they bubble around, they trend up a little bit in from after 1950s, um, but really they're not a different scale at all from mm. 1990 to 1900 or 1890. Um, it's really only from 95 that house prices start to tick up and, and quite rapidly, mm. and that was a situation that's not too different to what we have now. Mm. We, uh, we had a rapidly growing population, yeah. And we had a fixed housing stock. Mm. So the, the government at the time tried to address that by releasing some of the constraints in, in terms of building new homes. It didn't quite get it right. But the thing that they missed in all of that was supply of homes matters, but supply of credit matters as well. Yeah, it was high interest rates back then, wasn't there as so well? And interest rates were coming effect. down. Yeah. And as interest rates came down and More expectations about the future went mm. up, mm. you had people saying, well, instead of paying 10%, uh, interest mm. every year, and I'm not sure what's going to happen. The house price, uh, I now pay two or three percent or four percent interest, and house prices are going up by ten or fifteen percent yeah. a year. So actually, I'm making a profit. Mm. This is the way the thinking went. And just just to stop you there, we're going to go back to that point now of of where it moved from the early '90s onwards. But to tie into now the restriction that the financial institutions have brought in, well, the central bank have brought in. Um, do you think that they are going to be a good idea to restrict actual buying to a point where people who need to buy will buy and it will stop people getting in to invest where they probably shouldn't be or is this just a barrier that is going to cause more more issues at a later stage I mean I, d- I mightn't agree with every last detail that they've, they've brought in but the short version is if they brought this in in 95 rather than 2015 yeah. we wouldn't have had the bubble we did Yes, uh, it's that simple. Yeah, fully agreed, um, yeah. Because we went from twenty to twenty-five percent deposits down to zero to five percent deposits, yeah. and then back up to ten or fifteen percent deposits, mm. and that's where we've now landed: ten or fifteen percent deposits, twenty yeah. percent if you're a twenty percent, but they have their exemptions, and yeah, whatever. Yeah. So, um, I mean, that's the if you think about it, all the way from the eighteen sixties right up to the nineteen eighties, you had building societies. In building societies, you didn't have deposits, you had shares. And if they lent too much, they went out of business and you lost your shares, you lost your savings. Uh, when we replaced the building societies with banks, all of a sudden the government had stepped in with a guarantee about your your, your savings. Mm. So the banks had no, they didn't have the same incentive to be as cautious with their lending because they weren't wasting your savings because if they went Kabloomy, mm. then the government was going to step in with your savings and say, it's okay, we have deposit insurance. So they took a lot more risks, particularly Bank of Scotland Ireland when they came in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they were quite aggressive when they came into the market. They needed well. to get market share. They said, if we're going to go into the market, we'll do it, when, we'll do it in style. Yeah. Um, and they, they came in with 100% mortgages. Yeah. Now, that's the mistake that was made is not that things improved or that we got more optimistic. These things happen. Mm. But it's allowing that to feed into how you lend. Yeah. Um, so I don't think it's going to solve the supply shortages. I don't think that everyone's going to win from it. There's mm. going to be people who lose out now mm. because they get caught out because they don't have savings. Um, but as measures go, we shouldn't under we can't really um, uh, think that we could do without it because otherwise we could end up right back where we were twenty years yeah, ago. Yeah, and there was a slight inkling that this was unfair on a lot of people because suddenly we're restricting purchasers unfairly. People who hadn't gone out and spent their money. People who had saved and saved, and now suddenly what you found was you had a couple going out to buy a house in Dublin for 500,000 euros to buy them a very nice house. 
and suddenly they had an 80% um, mortgage and they had to have 20% of that. And they just didn't have it. You know, that is huge funds we're talking about there. So I, I suppose you get a lot of, the government got a lot of grief about that. But really in the long term, it probably is, it might help to correct the prices of property. I mean, the, the thing to remember is it's not the seller that sets the price. It's the buyer that sets the price. The seller sets the asking price, <laughs> yeah. um, but the, the, the buyer is the one who, who determines what it actually transacts for. And what we're, we're seeing at the moment, particularly at the, well, it's not quite the, the prime market, but it's the, the, sort of the top postcodes in, in, in Dublin, um, Dublin 4, 6, 6W, 14, 18, South County Dublin. Um, they're the most expensive places in the country. And what we've seen is, with a little bit of a, a wobble in November, December, January, February, as people were wondering, well, what is the central bank going to do? But basically, if you take prices now, mid-2015, mm. and compare them with just before the central bank introduced um, or, or said they were going to introduce something, they haven't really changed. They're yeah. unchanged in those nine, ten months. And, and that's those rules at work. Because roughly speaking, the, ba- the central bank has frozen lending procedures as they were in mid-2014. Mm. Um, so certainly there will be some people who will lose out and some people who will gain because they've been taken out yes, of the market. Yeah. But for the market as a whole, we now have this really concrete link between the real economy and the mortgage market and the housing market. Mm. And, and that's something that is important. Absolutely, yeah. Dave, you probably don't see too much of that aspect in the properties that you're selling. Well, I suppose just touching on postcodes there, and it's kind of quite topical at the moment, and um, you know, the introduction of, of the new postal address system. And I think one of the key things coming out of that is going to be linked to schooling as well. Mm-hmm. And um, this isn't, you know, with, within Ireland, you know, um, getting into schools now and, and trying to get in, you know, and, and being geographically linked whichever and um, you know if that's going to have an impact on that and um, well that that has a, a huge impact on property prices especially in Dublin not so much down the country I find but in Dublin definitely you feeder schools you've all these uh, primary secondary schools that you must be within a certain catchment area of these schools in order to send your child or children to them and that increases the value of property location 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 as they say yeah we we, we had a study out um, late last year that looked at the relationship between schools both primary and post-primary and, and house prices and roughly speaking if you're within say two or three hundred meters of a school as in you have a very strong claim to go there yeah. um you, you you expect to pay between three and five percent more depending on the Huge exact nature of the school and, yeah. and so on um but uh, but in general that uh, there's a there's a bigger issue here which is around the way society is gone, which 50% of weddings now are, are, are non-religious ceremonies. And 90% of primary schools are run by the Catholic Church. Yeah. And those maths just don't stack up. Mm-hmm. Um, the, they're allowed to discriminate by ethos, and that seems fair enough, as long as there's somewhere else for the non-religious children to go. Yeah. And there isn't yet at the moment. So you're going to have a lot of pressure in the housing market to live close to the Educate Togethers or the, the, yeah. the, the, the multi-faith schools. And I can see it with my own friends, that when they go to where am I going to live, uh, one of the key things is, is there an Educate Together near me? Um, And it seems crazy that uh, a potentially 30-year decision gets determined by five years or six years of schooling. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. and that's yeah, something I never really thought about as well, is the, the limited supply of not only properties, but also the amenities surrounding those properties. And that is what pushes the prices up of, I suppose, the, the areas we said, D6, D14, D16, D18, you know, these kind of areas. But I suppose to go back on to um, 1995, pushing onwards from there, the 
the interest rates were dropping. People were more interested in property. The in, because the interest rates were dropping and prices were increasing, then you got the smart Irish people deciding that everyone would decide to get on board with that and sell a bit of property. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you, if you break it down to it, I mean, a lot of people can try and overcomplicate the housing market. But actually, when you break it down, there's two types of things that push house prices up or down. The first are the, the fundamentals, which we, we heard all about 2006, 7, 8. The fundamentals are people's incomes, demographics, and the supply of housing. Uh, and they are quite slow moving. Uh, typically speaking, I know we did have a big uh, fall off in income in 2008, 2009 as, as unemployment soared. But grad- generally speaking, those things move quite slowly. Yeah. And um, only now, sorry, only now today in the news did I hear that there is a request for an increase in the minimum wage. So yeah. And that has taken a long time to come around. Yeah. The things that move quite fast and which cause housing market bubbles and crashes are the not the fundamentals but what you call the asset factors so people's expectations and the, the lending standards of banks those are the things that can turn overnight if if some calamity happens as happened with 9 11 mm. people's expectations and confidence about the economic future literally turned overnight uh, and that had an impact on housing demand it was offset by lots of loose lending cheap money and loose lending overcame that mm. um, within the space of about six months um, but they're the, the factors that turned a, a housing boom 95 to 2000 2001 into a housing bubble 2001 to 2007 mm. and then I suppose what we saw was just a situation that couldn't continue prices were you know I, I will never forget seeing queues outside of auctioneers offices all over Carlo Kilkenny Waterford, Dublin, everywhere we went, there were queues outside auctioneers' firms for houses that had, and apartments that had not yet been constructed. Um, money was being handed to people without any real um, information being provided. And it, it, it did seem out of control. Now, Ronan, you definitely know this. It is so important to look back at the mistakes we've made and to make sure we don't make them again so that we can move forward with property in Ireland and not get caught by this property bubble again. Yeah, I think you know, looking back at 95 to 2007 is important for what we can learn from it. Uh, and I suppose the number one thing I would take from it is you can't fight a lack of housing supply with more credit supply. And you don't just lend people more money if you don't have enough homes. You actually address the fact that you don't have enough homes and you try and control the amount you lend people. Because you think of it as first-time buyers fighting each other with extra credit. All they do is push up the price. Remember, it's the buyer that sets the price. Um, So I I think with the central bank rules, we have learned that lesson. But that's fighting the, the last war. That's 2020 hindsight. The, the current war really is about the cost of building. And, and, and in terms of how do we tackle what's happening in the housing market now? Why are people unhappy with the central bank rules? Well, they're unhappy with the central bank rules because their real economy, the income that they have, the savings that they have, don't allow them to, to buy. Mm. They should. Whatever you, If you have a job, if you have savings, you should be able to buy a home. And if you can't, something's gone wrong there, not on the lending side, but on the, the construction side. I think that's the key bit that we have to fix, and we have to fix pretty fast. Mm-hmm. And there's other elements around that, around social housing um, and around building standards. Yeah. But, but addressing the cost of construction is really the key battle in this particular war. Yeah, and I suppose you can see places like Cherrywood and Dublin now and these kind of areas where they are going to put in a monstrous amount of houses. Uh, Dunleary as well, I think, is going to have a substantial amount of houses put into them. Is that the answer or is it not? Depending on the types of houses they're going to put into these places. 
Well, I mean, as, as, as David mentioned earlier, what we, we see when we look around the developed world is, is more and more, in fact, around the world as a whole, more and more people moving into the bigger cities. The, the amenity value, the job creation value of living in a bigger city, living close to each other, has increased in the last 50 years. Uh, and, and that Ireland is not going to be any different. That's not to say that everyone is going to have to live in Dublin. It's just going to be the case that as many people live in Dublin compared to the population as a whole, as live in other countries in the biggest cities compared mm. to their populations as a whole. So Dublin is going to need to build extra housing. Um, and too often that gets cast as some sort of zero-sum game, that if, if Dublin is getting jobs or if Dublin is getting housing, that means Carlo or Donegal or Galway isn't. Mm. That's not the way the economy works. We're sort of in a global economy. Mm. If we can, The more we can attract people and capital into Ireland, mm. the better Ireland as a whole will, will do. Um, so if you want, if you want say, uh, however many people, if you want 50,000 people living in Leitrim, you don't try and shift them from Dublin because mm. that will never work. You increase the population of Dublin so that the population of the country as a whole is, can fit 50,000 people in Leitrim. Mm. I think that's a key um, change in mindset that the, the, sort of the, the very localistic Irish politics I don't know how we're going to achieve that. I think that's that's going to be anathema Difficult to a lot of Irish politicians. It. Absolutely, yeah. And do we have the property in in Dublin in Ireland? Do you think we do have these? Do we have many super prime properties? Uh, well, super prime, um, you, you get into more exclusive company, um, mm. but certainly, um, you know, I'd be of a view that we do have uh, certainly, you know, some properties and some of the locations and positions of properties that are of equal, you know, across across the, the globe. Mm. Um, and, you know, if they're going to get discovered and then, you know, even already some of the properties that have been bought in the last five years are some like magnificent restorations that are going. And then, you know, that that's more local um, craftsmen and tradesmen and, and, and ladies, whichever. Oh, all being employed. Yeah. So, you know, huge positives um, to, 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 you know, certainly that local economy, but then to the greater economy as well. Um, in that a, a lot of these um, super prime buyers have either come into Ireland initially through commercial purchases and commercial interests or businesses um, are through buying the, the, the residence first, but then quite often go on and either get into bloodstock here in Ireland or get into commercial um, property. So, you know, they've been hugely beneficial in that way in, in, as a draw to Ireland. Absolutely. and But you can even see that now if you talk about Google or Facebook in Dublin um, and the amount of employees they have brought to the area, area and Barrow Street down there has completely changed. And I see they've gone in for planning. Is it iconic or something they have referred to the construction down there um, and that will be a fantastic area when that's completed and that again is the idea of bring in the proper um, companies bring in the people to the capital and that will spread out from there yeah exactly i mean what we're what we're talking about and, and in fact one of my phd students is looking at this if we t- if you get fdi jobs into an area now it doesn't have to be dublin it can be carrick and shannon or it can be kilkenny or wherever now, what is the impact on the local housing market and, and trying to quantify that because that's a key way of, of, of estimating the, the benefit that an extra 100 jobs, an extra 50 jobs, each project on its own may seem pretty small. Mm. But if you've only got 200 vacant properties in a town, mm. bringing an extra 50 or 100... That's uh, a huge benefit. Uh, yeah, and that's 50 or 100 uh, jobs, which is probably 50 or 100 families that are, are supported by that. Um, so, so certainly, I think trying to... And this connects right back into the super prime. If we can get 
Uh, I know, for example, there's that large estate um, just outside Sligo Town that sold recently, and, and that's going to get uh, renovated. And uh, getting these back into use, um, whether it's as, as wedding venues or as conferencing, or even if it's as private homes, as long as they employ people, yeah. I mean, that is uh, an area where. Uh, the more beautiful and isolated and rugged the part of Ireland it is, the, the more it is internationally competitive in being Absolutely. a wedding venue something or different. a conferencing centre or something different. Um, and that's, I think, a huge opportunity for Ireland. Mm. And we've seen, a, again, a knock-on effect with the type of business that's coming into the country. I only saw recently down in Carlo confirmation that what was the old bronze site has now been purchased um, and they want to put in a technology park. Now, that will bring huge benefits to Carlo, you know, and that will be properties that will be purchased in Carlo by companies to put employees in. And that is the knock-on effect. So you bring in technology companies to Dublin, they will move out towards the kind of commuter areas as time goes on. So we will be seeing a knock-on effect to that. Um, Okay, well, I suppose there there are a couple of other issues, kind of peripheral issues to all of this, and that would be different things we touched on the property price register before um, and the kind of levels of that which can be substantially high Dave when we're dealing with serious properties yeah well absolutely um, now you know our overall property tax structure here in Ireland is pretty benign on, on an international level mm-hmm. so you know even with those increases um, but you know certainly with capital appreciation and, and you know building that in and then depending what Increases and you know there may well be incre- decreases equally, um, so you know they may it may balance things out. Um, and something that we had chatted a small bit about before, I suppose, another kind of capital tax, which is capital acquisitions tax or gift tax. Mm. You know, and this is a substantial tax that's applicable on an inheritance or a gift of property. Now, what we saw was back in two thousand and eight, capital acquisitions tax. The threshold between a father and a son, or a father and a daughter, or a mother, son, mother, daughter, was roughly uh, €550,000. That has now been less than halved at this stage. So it means that there are specific very high taxes which are applicable to properties over that level. So, you know, there, there are still means and ways that the government are making a substantial amount of money from the sale and transfer of properties. Stamp duty, another one. Um, that's, that's dropped off hugely since boom time. But again, we're looking at 1%. And as the uh, sale increases, as property prices come back as well, we see that there is a vast increase in stamp duty as well. So capital taxes are going to play a big element of this. And I wonder soon enough, are we going to see these kind of taxes increase again? Um, back during the boom, we were looking at 9% for certain property purchases. You know, So it, it again depends on what the government is going to do on this. Yeah, I think politically the... Roughly speaking across Europe, but I think particularly in Ireland, the you're going to see a much stronger and more assertive left-wing political element of the spectrum. Uh, so whenever the next election happens, I wouldn't be surprised if a, a key part of the next government is uh, more strongly left-wing than, say, the Labour part of, of this coalition. And one of the, the, the key tenets um, uh, of, of left-wing politics is more capital taxes and less labour taxes. Uh, and that would mean that, particularly in the area of property, because you can't move it, mm. um, you can move many other assets, but you can't move land or property, um, that we, we will probably see a higher tax burden. Um, mm. Although, paradoxically, uh, most of the left-wing parties in Ireland are strongly against the property tax, so I'm yeah. not sure how that's all going to um, balance out, yourself, yeah. but I think inheritance is a key area where the, they'll square that circle yeah. um, uh, in terms of, of trying to address inequality through um, relatively straightforward tax measures. Hopefully, anyway. Okay, well, I suppose just to kind of finalise all of this, Ronan, you know, what do you think of the property market at the moment? 
the I mean, the key thing is, I suppose, what a lot of people listening might want to be, they might want to know is, you know, should I buy now or not? Mm. Uh, and and it's a critical question for most people. You yeah. Know? Now, yeah. Even if you're interested in buying property or not, being Irish, we're inherent that we, we will spend our day on Daft. Yeah. Okay, you know, looking, even if we have no interest, I love going through Daft just to see what's for sale. That's called doing research. Of um, course. Yeah. Uh, and, well, and that's a key part of it is, is it's knowing the decisions that you make. So when a, a deal comes along that sounds too good to be true, we, t- we say this to you know first-time users at Daft on mm-hmm. an ongoing basis, the students as they come in each year, you know, beware of scams because they'll yeah. be looking for you because <laughs> they think you'll be the ones that are fall for it. Yeah. Um, but in, in general, in, in relation to the housing market, it really is about doing the sums. And it can sound boring. And, you know, it could be a, a case for getting a financial advisor to, to help out. But actually looking at a 10 or 15-year flow, if you have... If you have a, a, a job that you're reasonably happy about in terms of, I would expect to be still in this in 10 years' time, and I want to still be living in this area in 10 years' time because of kids or whatever, um, then we'll have a look at how much you'd be paying in rent and have a look at how much you've got in savings and how much you'd be paying if you took out a mortgage. Um, and do those maths, roll those maths forward and see does it make sense. Uh, roughly speaking, there's not a huge difference between the cost of renting and the cost of a mortgage for, a, say, a three-bed or a four-bed. Um, it can be a, a little cheaper to rent uh, a three- or four-bed, but that only makes sense if you're investing the difference. Yes. Um, yeah, because yeah. if you fast-forward 30, 40 years, mm. you, you, you're in your 60s, it's perfectly viable to have rented all along as long as you've been investing the difference yes. and you have a nest egg that you can live off mm. on retirement the same way people do when they buy. Yeah, very important point, yeah, that, you know, and it comes back to this dead money idea, but, you know, you have the security. If you purchase a home, you have the security of that home. So in the future, when it comes to retiring or if you were to go to a nursing home or... If you were to downsize, it gives you that ability to sell the property, realize the asset, and use the money for your own upkeep or maintenance. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of talk about behavioral economics now and how you nudge people into making the right decision. One of the key things about buying your own home is it makes it very tough for you to eat into your savings, your nest egg for when you retire, because it's stuck there in one asset. You can't actually, that is its drawback and its advantage, yeah, is that yeah, you can't actually access yeah. that wealth. Um, so it's, it's by no means set that you would you have to buy if you're, a, if you're able to set money aside and, and, and not touch it unless you really, really need to. There's definitely options there for renting and investing. Mm. That's your, your alternative to buying. Um, but for most people, when they look at the housing market, if they're bringing a 15% deposit, if they're looking at a 10 or 15 year time frame over which they'll have probably paid down maybe a quarter of the mortgage, yeah. you're talking now about a 35 to 40% cushion against the fear at the moment is negative equity. Yeah, yeah. If I need to move, I won't be able to. Yeah. But the central bank rules um, and the right time really horizon, yeah. will they will help you uh, prevent that situation from, from happening. Yeah. And Dave, I suppose in, in your aspect, what do you think at the moment for some of these, not even the, the, the super prime, but even down to the over 1 million euros is, is now a time that people should be looking at these properties? Well, certainly, um, you know, one of the biggest things of, of the professional landlord that came into the market, um, you know, re- really seeing them and, um, you know, appraising what, what a correct buying price should be of, of working out the rental income and the back to a yield or whichever. Um, now, unfortunately, most of us, when we come to our homes, 
Um, you know, it's like you were talking there earlier, that 5 to 8% yield for being close to a school and whichever, you know, there's that emotion aspect that comes into it. Mm. So, you know, everyone has to wake up somewhere. And, you know, if you have a preference, you, you know, um, and that's the good beauty yeah. of, of the residential market is that everyone wants to live in a home. Yeah, everyone wants to live in a home. And I suppose, yeah, it is. And as you said, Ron, it's the purchaser who really dictates at the end of the day. And uh, just on the ground, I suppose, on the solicitor side of it, where we are beginning to see a market that is moving. And, you know, we are beginning to see a lot of purchasers getting involved and maybe pushing prices slightly. In Carlo, definitely there's movement. I mean, the, the sign of a healthy uh, housing market is not the price, it's the number of transactions. Yes. Um, and it was un- unhealthily high uh, in 2005, 6, 7, and it was unhealthily low 2010, 11, 12. Uh, we're getting back to the kind of healthy levels we should be seeing. And, and getting back at a speed, I think, that, that it's certainly taken me by surprise. I was looking back at estimates I made this time last year about how many transactions there would be in the second half of 2014 mm. and I was way out that there were significantly more transactions than I had thought there would be even now, at that uh, point. And do you think though and uh, we won't go on too much more but do you think that that has anything to do with the capital gains tax exemption that was up in December so what we saw anyway was a lot of clients coming to us in October and basically saying we can claim the capital gains tax exemption as long as we purchase before the 31st of December. So we had a huge amount of purchasing for those last three months of 2014, just so that there was a benefit going onwards from there. Actually, I think the, the bigger driver was was just that the, the market was seemingly picking up everywhere. Mm. So Dublin had been, the number of transactions had been increasing for you know two, two and a half years, and it had been steady, healthy increase. But it was outside Dublin you saw a big turnaround in transaction volumes. And that was just because there was a general perception that the economy had bottomed out and was starting to improve. Mm. And, and once people were reasonably confident that they weren't going to get stung with 10 or 20% price falls in the next year or two, um, there was a bit of pent-up demand, and that, that swung into action. And, and that's why we're seeing uh, in places like you know Roscommon and Clare currently 10-15% growth in the space of, of 12 months. So certainly there's a capital gains tax element, I think, but it's more secondary it's more to the, kind of the fundamental. That's the bottom of it. Now is a good time to get back into this. Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. Lads, I'd like to thank you a lot for joining us today. Um, and we will have a new podcast up uh, next month. So we'll talk to you soon. This does not purport to be legal or agency advice of any description. If you have any queries or questions in relation to any of the content of the podcast, uh, please feel free to contact uh, Clark Jeffers Solicitors.